And in Screen X, when you were surrounded by all of the visuals of the bridge collapsing, for example, super immersive and very effective. And like I said, when they get into that sort of Hogwarts world, again, it's like when you're immersed in it, very effective, very cool. Hello, and welcome to At the Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about 65 and Shazam, Fury of the Gods, starting with 65. Mike, a movie where Adam Driver goes to Jurassic Park. Where do you want to start with this one? Well, let's actually start with that. So much of this involves how you market a movie. And Marina, I usually talk on more aesthetic grounds. You know, does the movie work or not? What's it like? But, you know, the production costs aren't the end of it. You then have to market the movie. The title itself, 65, it doesn't really tell you. It could be a, it could be a, a geriatric comedy with, with Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda or something, right? Although they're well beyond 65. But see, the thing is, it, it's an open number. It becomes very clear what it refers to. And here's where I thought they had, I don't want to say a missed opportunity, but I was struck by this. So let's say you decide, okay, we want to keep the story somewhat under wraps. And Marie and I are always sensitive to not having spoilers, right? So we're so careful as to what we tell you and what we don't. But here's where they've told you probably more than they should have right up front. A lot of movies, if they had a title like 65, would be a little coy with it, just in the sense of Adam Driver's this astronaut. He's got to leave his planet. He's had, he crash lands on another planet. And lo and behold, where he finds out he is and where we in the audience find out that we are. And ordinarily, the spoiler would be like, hey, if you've seen the movie or know much about it, keep it to yourself. Don't tell your neighbors so they have the thrill of discovery that when he crash lands, guess what? It's 65 million years ago. Okay, but where does he crash land? Well, on planet Earth. Now, ordinarily, I would think ideally I would not be telling you planet Earth. I would want to like keep that under wraps. But when you look at the actual advertising and promotional campaign for the film, the poster and so on, it tells you all of that basically already. Let's just talk about that as a strategy. Like in a case like this one, would you be better off like trying to hold that back from the audience or just right up front saying, guess what? He discovers he's on planet Earth, which means a lot more to us than it does to him initially. I don't think it hurts it to have given that little bit away because I don't think the movie really landed the way they thought it would. And I'm not sure why Adam Driver even made this movie. And I'll tell you, my major complaint with the movie is this. When we were talking about Cocaine Bear a couple of weeks ago, one of the pleasures of a movie that has a monster in it is, you know, the despicable character that you can't wait for the monster to eat. So you get a opportunity to root for the monster. And here there are no bad guys to be devoured. So the you know, the you never get that satisfying catharsis of wanting that to happen. I would phrase it differently. I would say, if anything, ironically, there are a lot of bad guys and they're all dinosaurs and they all <laughs> want to eat you. So you're absolutely right, Marie. It's not it's not a conventional film in the sense of he's our protagonist, our lone astronaut. He's the only survivor of the crash or he thinks he's the only survivor of the crash. He'll find out there's another person who survived. We'll talk about that. But the fact that we're obviously going to root for him, not just because it's a movie star playing the role. This poor guy crash landed on a strange planet with, with all these dinosaurs. And the thing is, once they start attacking him, it's just one thing after another. It's, it's the kind of plot description. And this film has had mixed to negative reviews. So I'm only too happy to pile on. Marie's already piled on. I'll pile on too. That really didn't care for the film very much. And what 
one reason is even though technically it's well realized, I mean, you know, the dinosaurs are well animated and convincing, uh, you know, uh, I had some quibbles there. For some reason, the vegetation 65 million years ago still looks pretty much like the vegetation today. They didn't make too many alterations there, but the dinosaurs look like period dinosaurs. <laughs> so that's convincing. But you know what? With the one day, and the film's not particularly long, it's 93 minutes. So it does move along at a brisk pace. But you know what? It's like one thing after another. You know, you escape one dinosaur, here's the next. And it got to the point where it was like, I think it was meant, I don't know if it was meant to be funny, but I was laughing at it. Like there's even a scene where poor Adam Driver, like he hasn't been through enough, right? He starts to sink in quicksand. I thought quicksand. I thought, boy, that goes back to like a silent movie serial, doesn't it? That he's about to be swallowed up by the quicksand. And of course, the other lone survivor will help rescue him. But but the point here is just that there's a kind of almost desperation at a, at a certain level here of like, okay, what can we throw at him next? Um, and so I think the movie is is like, you know, in many ways, very disappointing, just at the level, as Marie said, and you're absolutely right, Marie, there's not really any narrative suspense in the sense of our good guy against a bad guy. It's just him trying to get through that environment, trying to get back to the, the, the remains of his ship because he thinks that might have an escape uh, module that could get him out of there. And, and at that point, you're just sort of tracking it scene by scene. And uh, it's never exactly boring, but there is a sense for me of kind of more uh, what I call a marking time. It's just like, okay, he's headed towards the ship. And okay, another dinosaur, they'll take care of it. And uh, since I already briefly mentioned the other survivor, there is a, a small a girl who, who also had survived the the wreck there. So there is a bit of bonding, though they don't share the same language. And one of the things you just have to take on faith here, I mean, admittedly, a story like this one, you've got to accept a lot on faith. But but the fact when you go back that many millions of years ago, that, okay, this is how it was when dinosaurs roamed the earth. Okay, I can buy that. I can't argue much otherwise, can I? But the fact that he's from this other planet, and the reason he left the other planet is his daughter is like deathly ill and he needs to raise money to try to get her. I don't know what I don't know what her illness is or what the operation would be, but he's got to take like a two year flight to try to make enough money to pay for her operation. And I won't spoil what actually happens with his, his nuclear family, if you will. But this is why he leaves his planet as part of this this mission. And then again, the crash I already mentioned. But the fact that he, the Adam Driver character, in all ways, is completely like a 21st century human being in terms of how he looks and dresses and talks and all that stuff. And I thought, well, I got to allow for that on some distant planet 65 million years ago, there, there was, a, you know, an Earth-like uh, nuclear family, and they're just like us. And, and, and I got to say, as Maria, as I watched the film, I don't think I was meant to think about this, but I found myself obsessing with it. Like, well, come on now. Like that. that how did you respond to that? Because, you know, they couldn't give him some gills or green skin or anything. <laughs> what do you think? Um, you make a really good point. And when I was watching it, I was thinking the same thing that, wait, is this a time travel thing? Because you're right. It seems like it starts off in present day. And somehow we end up somewhere that's 65 million years in the past. And, you know, you can do all kinds of things like that in a science fiction movie because, you know, you just suspend the rules to work with the story. But I thought it was a it was a glaring error. To, and Gills would have been really cool. I will say that as a Marine, this is the first in Adam Driver's film career where he uses his weapons training from his old career. That may have been one of his reasons for wanting to make the movie. I can be believable and, you know, maybe be really cool to do something with this sort of topic. I don't know if he has kids because we always bring up that idea. You know, if, he, if he's got a five-year-old boy who is really into dinosaurs, I can see why he would sign up for this film. But they shot it in 40 days as opposed to the Jurassic World movies, which take have taken, you know, over 100 days of filming. And do you think that that's part of what went wrong or is it the script? I think it's all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, they actually did, in terms of where they actually shot, it was sort of an odd fusion. Much of it was shot in Louisiana, which which kind of works in terms of a swampy environment, you know, that you might imagine dinosaurs roaming through. And it was also though partly shot in Oregon and then mostly shot through CGI. So it, it, it's, it's a mixture of all the above. Now, why 65 million years ago and not 75 million years ago? Well, you may recall you know, as best we know, there was a major extinction event. And, and so that's sort of hovering over the film, much as the asteroids are, that, you know, is there going to be an imminent crash that way of asteroids that might kill all the dinosaurs? And wouldn't it be just Adam Driver's bad luck that he lands on Earth just as it's about to be decimated by these, these asteroids? So I don't think I'm spoiling too much there, because once you start to fixate on what 65 million years ago really means, because after all, it didn't have to be then. I mean, that's what they decided on. As if he didn't have enough problems with quicksand, he's not going to have an, an extinction event to deal with. If they had said it 1 million years BC, he could run into Raquel Welch, right? I mean, it could, it could be a somewhat different somewhat different storyline at that point. Now, back to your earlier observation, why did Adam Driver take this role? Uh, there's something known as a paycheck, and I think that might have been part of it too. And I can imagine it would have been some fun to actually act in this, though you're mostly acting against a green screen, but still, I mean, I, I could imagine having some fun with that. And the other thing I'll say, and this is a more generous comment, is just, you know, when you agree to make a movie, you hope for the best typically uh you don't you don't imagine or want the worst and 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 so you know the best of intentions in some ways that you know this is a film that might have been fun might have might have worked and and also as an as a, a showcase for an actor because other than really we do briefly see that nuclear family back on the home planet but for the most part, it's just two human beings, uh, you know, Adam Driver and, and the, the girl that, that he rescues and she rescues him, et cetera. And, you know, as an actor, that's kind of tempting. You pretty much have the screen to yourself. you got to share with dinosaurs, but otherwise you get to be the star. You know, I want to go back to the quicksand thing, because I think when he was reading the script and he came to the quicksand, that should have been it. Because wasn't that just a trope from Saturday morning cartoons, you know, one thing after another, including the quicksand? Well, that's what I said. It's like a silent movie serial. Right? I mean, you could go all the way back into like the silent era. Like, let's put our, our, our hero and, you know, put him in a pith helmet and, and safari garb, send him out into the jungle. And, you know, whether it's dinosaurs or, you know, angry natives, whatever, you know, stereotypically what he's up against. And sure enough, he rounds the corner, which would be a tree, I guess, rounds the corner and lands right smack in some quicksand. And I know quicksand can do things like that, but there's nothing quite like movie quicksand because it's got to be like 20 feet deep and it will suck you in and, and only your pith helmet will be left on top in a matter of moments. <laughs> but I, that's why it's like really hokey there. I don't I, So I said earlier, I'm not sure they intended it to be funny or as funny as I took it because I was laughing at it, not with it at that point. Yeah, me too. That, that to me was almost the last straw was the quicksand. So his daughter has cancer. That's what her malady is. Yeah, and I know. But, but can't they treat cancer up on, on the home planet with very, I don't know what their, what their health plan is like there, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you have to take to your flight, you know, I'm getting at, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's supposedly cancer. But, you know, the reason I have to hedge on that is I think we only spend a few minutes with the mother and the daughter on the home planet. And we don't know that much about them, do we really? So we know, okay, she's got cancer or whatever, but what is cancer like on this planet 65 million years ago, right? And what is what are treatment options? See, I'm, I'm being deliberately silly with it because the film kind of raises those issues and then just totally ignores them as to, you know, I guess people had cancer back then, but you know, where would the nearest hospital be? When you see that home planet, it doesn't seem like there's much of anything around there, right? So that's where I just sort of have fun and make fun of the movie itself. like. 
you know, and also it's, it's kind of shameless in some ways. Of course, she's an adorable little girl on the home planet. And, you know, the parents are there and it's a beach type setting and lovey-dovey and all. And of course, our hearts go out. How could they not? But it's so manipulative, isn't it, really? Let's pull the strings. And she's a cute little girl. You know what? And she's got cancer. She's going to die. And it's like, oh, you know, and, and uh, to me, that's kind of shameless in some ways. It's like movies that deliberately put children at risk in a way, like, who, who are they going to kidnap? You know, the mother-daughter kind of thing. Like, come on, like, let a kid have a normal upbringing and go to school and this and that, and not have the kidnapper or the cancer or the asteroid or something coming after her. Well, but one thing that did sort of bother me about his choice to go on this mission that was going to be two years is, I mean, I understand the financial aspect of it, but to remove yourself from the side of the person that is suffering and sick and, and young and vulnerable and all those things. Was that a smart choice? It almost seemed to create a sense of judgment or regret for the character, which I didn't think was really did the movie any favors in terms of following him as a hero. I was kind of troubled by that. And honestly, I'm still sort of thinking it over. Like, you know, I got I got it in an obvious sense that what his daughter's up against on the home planet, son, and here he is now on planet Earth. And lo and behold, the only other survivor is another little girl, right? And, and that it become like a surrogate father-daughter thing. That to me, again, was sort of like yanking the chain in a way that, yeah, I got it. I'm not totally dense. But, but the thing is, at that point, again, it seems sort of exploitative in a way that was not viewer friendly. I almost thought like, because the way he handles that, I thought, you know, give this little girl a, a break, you know, that she's suddenly burdened with all this, that she's the replacement daughter in some ways. Doesn't that almost, you know, I understand how if I were in that, thank goodness I'm not, but if I were in that situation, yeah, you'd want to care for any survivor, but particularly this case where you, you look at the little girl and you think about your own daughter, but isn't that, it's so heavy handed. Yeah. I'm going to say this is a movie for diehard fans of Adam Driver and everybody else should probably just wait till it comes out on DVD or streaming. But that brings us to Shazam, Fury of the Gods. Now, Mike, we talk so many times about superhero movies, and this is yet another one. And I think you're probably not going to agree with me, but I like a lot of things about this movie. But I will first of all say there's too many characters, and it's very difficult to keep everybody straight, especially when they go from their human form to their superhero form. I think that part of it is just so murky and hard to follow. But there were so many fabulous moments in terms of scenes in this movie. What was your initial reaction, Mike? Uh, my initial reaction and my ultimate reaction were the same, negative. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the full title of the film is Shazam! Exclamation point, Fury of the Gods. So I'll leave off the exclamation point for sake of brevity here. Uh, I, I one, one of the reasons I didn't like it is, is of course, just sequelitis. You know, the fact that we've been through Shazam, now there's more Shazam, if you will. So that's a whole other soapbox to stand on. But where I'll agree with you, Marie, in terms of something that bothered us both was the fact that the film is really busy. It's overly busy. Some of it has to do with what I call the power of the gods. Like you have these human characters who can suddenly morph, uh, you know, transform themselves in, 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 into um, superhero type figures. And, you know, the back and forth between kids, basically, and, and adults who are, you know, blessed with superhuman powers, etc. So that's already busy, you know, that alone, right? When you when you keep jumping back and forth from here we are as kids, here we are as adult superheroes. But then in terms of the gods themselves, the film plays so fast and loose with this. It talks about the pantheon of gods. And one, one scene that I think is unintentionally funny is that there's like a roster of there's Zeus and there's Atlas and there, there's Mercury. And first of all, you get very little sense of those individual gods, right? It doesn't really develop any of that in a meaningful way. But then they keep adding that list of gods. 
And suddenly they have names like Solomon and Achilles. And I'm thinking that, well, maybe I'm a stickler for my Edith Hamilton translation of, of Greek mythology, but Achilles was not a god, you know, and, and, and the film itself is totally heedless of that. It just tosses it all into the same pot. So in terms of the overall busyness of the film, you have all of that, what I'll call body switching, because it is a body switching film in that sense of from kid to adult. You got that, then you have this, this you know, abundance of gods tossed into it. And then you have their parents, the kids' parents and so on. And then you even have a wizard, you know, and it's all just sort of thrown into the mix. And it's sort of frenetic that way in, in a, a meaningless sense. It doesn't really add up to much. It's just arbitrary. Let's do this. Let's do that. And um, I was getting a headache after all. I was sort of exhausted by it because it just kept bouncing around that way. Well, this is also the 12th film in the DC Extended Universe. Which means, first of all, like we've seen 11 more like this. But I know, also- <laughs> every one. Every minute of every one. <laughs> but you would think that we would be completely up to date with all of the characters, given that we've seen the whole backstory. But it, it's very confusing, especially since in some cases, the same actor will play themselves as a human and as a superhero. And others, it's two completely different actors. So it's just very, very busy, like you said. But let's talk about what worked. Love the opening scene where their ridge is starting to snap and uh, disintegrate and crumble and cars are going off the edge and, you know, falling through the cracks and they, they show up to save the day. Fun to watch. Really cool scene. Very believable. Thought that was a great way to open. There's a scene where it's almost like they end up in Hogwarts, where there's this pen that is animated and alive and you can ask it questions and then it will write out the answers. Really fun, really cool. And the third thing was when Lucy Liu's character whispers in someone's ear, you don't get to find out what the words are, we probably shouldn't know. There's this effect where this darkness like seeps up into the person's face and then they become obsessed with violence and mayhem. And that effect I thought was really cool. Well, you know what? You mentioned scenes that really on their own are quite arresting. And and I often have this observation about this kind of superhero film that excerpted, it can look great. Take individual sequences, like the opening bridge scene. It really is is, is clever the way they handle it. You know, if you were on this kind of suspension bridge and, and suddenly it starts collapsing, how would you as a superhero or, or a, a bevy of a group of superheroes try to like save the bridge and of course the people in their cars? It's really quite engaging visually to, to watch that. So I agree with you in that sense. The other thing that I found actually kind of neat about it throughout the film is so many of the superhero movies are set either in New York City or, or a kind of metropolis that is essentially in New York skyline and so on. This one is very firmly set in Philadelphia. I'm not sure if Philadelphia deserves this <laughs> that had happened to it. But, you know, the fact that you could have like the Ben Franklin Bridge, whatever. I mean, you have some landmarks that, that are shown and all. I thought that was kind of neat, just in the sense that the, the hometown for the kids is referred to as Philadelphia. And because they're misunderstood in their own city, within the sequel, you know, there's some backstory where you realize that the natives of Philadelphia haven't always understood them fully or appreciate them. And they're actually known as the fiascos there because of how their actions are interpreted. And I, I did sort of in, enjoy that a bit because I thought it added something a little distinctive to what otherwise could be a very generic mix. Now, I saw this in Screen X, which might have been one of the reasons why I enjoyed it more than you did. Because, I mean, with a movie like this, you really have to provide a believable world, whatever it's going to be, you know, in the way that, you know, the dinosaur world, you know, okay, you know, you just sort of take it on faith because there's no way to really know. Here there really isn't either, but you have to sell it to me. And in Screen X, when you are surrounded by all of the visuals of the bridge collapsing, for example, super immersive and very effective. And like I said, when they get into that sort of Hogwarts world, again, it's like when you're immersed in it, very effective, very cool. 
but these are bright spots and they're, I don't know, the wrapping around what the story should be doing and the actors should be doing. And I'll agree with you that the story itself is just a covering just to, to get to the CGI and the, and the cool effects and stuff. I did not necessarily find the drama that was, you know, the underlying family drama. I kept waiting for them to get back to the special effects. Well, that's ultimately the, the reason you watch a film like this. You, you, you go for the special effects and you put up with the story. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes the stories don't quite work. And it's, it, the reaction is like, well, so what? Or, or just story? What story? You know, who cares? Almost. You know, that's a matter of what you sign on for, you know, what, what you're looking for. And, and in my case, as you mentioned, those individually well-realized sequences. Yeah, they kept me with the film. I mean, I you know, it was enjoyable to watch it in that sense. But it was not satisfying for me, particularly in terms of character or or storyline. And, and I don't think um, it's now sounding remarkably old fashioned to even look for things like that. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't, isn't that kind of too bad? There's so many characters too to root for and to wonder about. That's why I, I agree with you that it's really busy. There's too many of the characters. Some of them needed to have been, you know, away at summer camp or something, just to narrow it down to a couple of characters. At the end, it's, it's about uh, the main character and one of his brothers. One reason for all of that busyness is the fact that, you know, indeed, if they should be off at summer camp, they'd be at summer camp waiting for the next sequel. You know, that's that's one reason why we get so many characters, because so often in these sequels, what do they do? They're not fully satisfying on their own because they're already setting us up for the next installment. And that's a case where if you say, who's that guy or why that guy do this or that? It's like, well, OK, you'll, you'll have to come back in a year and you'll get an answer on that point. And that's where, again, it's not sufficiently self-contained. It's already looking ahead in a way that I understand financially why that would be the case, but creatively, it can be frustrating for an audience. I'll also say it has Helen Mirren in it, who I would watch. I would pay money just to watch her read the ingredients off of a bottle of ibuprofen. And here she is playing one of the gods. And I wouldn't say it's an Oscar worthy role or anything like that, but any movie is better with Helen Mirren in it. Well, you know, I've been thinking about that. Uh, uh, Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu play two daughters of Atlas. So this is their their genealogy, if you will. And I've often said over the years that I would watch Helen Mirren in anything. And I've got to say, this movie put it to the test. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not one of her more, more notable performances. Her character is, is just really a one-dimensional character. And, and so as an actor, she pretty much just wears one or two expressions throughout the movie. And she's yeah, she's convincing because she's Helen Mirren, right? But there's not much range to it. I'll put it politely. She just comes on and she has a certain persona. And this is a case where, you know, uh, you know, bless her. She's, she's a great actor. And sometimes you take movies just for the heck of it, like a lark or for an easy paycheck or something. And so I don't I don't blame her in that sense. But honestly, where I feel kind of sad about it is you think of all the great movies she could have made, rather than appearing as, as a, you know, a god here or a goddess here. Uh, and that's where it is kind of a shame, because it, it is sort of squandering, you know, a major talent. Well, again, you know, we, we talk about why people take on these roles. And I think when you take on something like this, it's a franchise, and it's stuff kids like, you know, comic books and comic book heroes and stories where you get to, you know, have these sorts of you know, bringing in that whole Harry Potter element of it, you know, really pitching it to kids. I can see if she has any children in her life. She probably wanted to be in it. And this kind of character, I think, is great for her because, you know what, I thought she looked great. 
Well, you know, you make an interesting point and, and, and a genuinely heartfelt point that sometimes actors of real stature like that will make movies that they want their children and grandchildren to be able to watch. And that's as, as much of a motivation as, as finances, I, I think. And so, I mean, I can't speak for her on this. I, you know, I haven't, she hasn't really been doing much by way of press on this film, understandably, I think. But <laughs> but the, the, the fact that, you know, she may have so the, that kind of personal reason, like would, wouldn't the, the kids or grandkids enjoy this sort of thing? And we've talked about other films where actors that have been upfront about that, that they wanted a movie their kids could watch, they could sit down and watch with their kids. So maybe that factors into it. The other thing without giving it away, love that cameo at the end. Well, uh, we can't give it away though. So what can we say about it? <laughs> Just that in terms of, because, you know, I will say, like, I think you were trying to make the point. It is a very flat movie in the sense that there's never really any sense of tension about how things are going to work out. You're never really concerned about that. But it has these moments, like I said, the, the bridge scene to open with, fabulous. And then like the scene with the writing pen, really cool. The way the evil kind of rises up in the face of the people being whispered to by Lucy Liu, really cool each time it happens. And then to end with that bang, with that cameo, I thought in terms of pacing and giving you high points, you know, in case you got bored or confused, really well done. Well, again, sometimes the pacing works really well. Other times it's just arbitrarily busy, you know, so it's, it's inconsistent that way. But for a movie that runs 130 minutes, it moves pretty quickly. And, and it, you know, as, as those superhero movies go, it's not overly long. It, it, it doesn't push it too far. So some props for that. You know, get some credit for that, I think. Now, there's a, a romance that goes on with one of the characters and one of the goddesses, which did not ring true for me at all. At first it did. But once it is revealed what's going on, I just, it lost me. Well, I, I was lost too there because I kept thinking about the actual Greek mythology as we know it or think we know it, right? And here again, uh, when I use the word expression fast and loose, the film just helter-skelter, just throws this stuff at us. So uh, I really didn't care about any of those romances or whatever, because I don't think the film itself cared much about them. No, well, that's a good point. That is a good point. Now, we have to mention the unforgivable sin of going over two hours. Yeah, but it wasn't as extreme as some of these movies can be. You know what I mean? I mean, I mean, I, I, I basically feel that way, but I, we've had worse examples, right? Worse cases. But especially when you, you want people to hang in through all of the stuff at the end so that they can see all the cameos that come at the end. Going over two hours, you, st you start thinking, what could they have cut? Now, are there any scenes in particular you would have absolutely cut? Well, I would have cut the whole movie, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's my personal prejudice, I guess. Uh, but in terms of waiting for cameos at the very end, I've seen a few movies lately, and I won't spoil anything whatsoever, but sometimes where that, that final Easter egg or, or you know cameo is worth it, sometimes where it's not. And you feel like I sat through 10 minutes of credits for that, you know, and I've done this a few times recently where I was like, the, even when I was like, almost like the only one left in the theater, me and the usher sweeping up already. And I'm, I'm thinking for that 10 second shot, I, I sat here through all this. So I think that's a real issue as to audiences now are accustomed to staying through all that. Sometimes it pays off. And uh, frankly, sometimes it doesn't, you know, it's just like, oh, come on. What do you think, um, though? I mean, I think it's it's kind of like the quicksand thing. It's one of those Saturday morning cartoon things where, you know, you watch and you watch and you watch and then they end with next week on whatever the show is. And then they give you some sort of teaser so that you'll tune in next week. And that's what they are. Most of the time they're setting you up for the next movie. So, you know, you're you're never going to be done with these characters, Mike. 
They're going to come back. We're going to have to see another Shazam. You know that, right? I mean, that's such a scary thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, by the way, can I just ask you how you feel about the whole Shazam, the whole way that they become uh, superheroes? I, I find that the hokiest of all of the superhero you know, methodologies. It's but incredibly you hokey, isn't Shazam, it? And I know. I, it's so incredibly hokey. It's That's like a- if you were if you were just like like hypothetically just talking to your friends and you said, how about this as a story idea? And it's Shazam. And I become they would like laugh you out of the room. Right. They say, That's so stupid. That's so dumb. You know, and, and the word itself, even it's sort of like like even as a small kid, I realized that's really hokey. <laughs> yeah. Even the word itself. Yes, you're absolutely right. It's, and every time they do it, I cringe a little bit. But like I said, there were things about it I thought were very cool. And if you do have somebody in your family that wants to see this, see it in Screen X. It's so much better with that immersive, uh, you know, feeling of it being all around you. But that does bring us to the end of this episode. But don't forget to check out our other podcasts at atmhcc.podbean.com. And we will see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.